As recently as the 1960s, the hallucinogen LSD showed promise in treating alcoholism and heroin addiction. But then the moral panic at the flower power generation got psychedelics frog-marched into the shadowy company of a suite of illicit drugs. For four decades, research stopped. But now scientists are back at the drawing board, testing to see if psychedelics can put the brakes on certain addictive spirals. In this episode, a man in his mid-fifties goes down the rabbit hole in search of the ghosts of his military past, his long-dead father, and the roots of his troubled relationship with the bottle. Welcome to The Psychonauts, a podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic psychiatry as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. If you haven't listened to earlier episodes, you can do so via the website psychonauts.co.za or catch up through iTunes. The story in this episode will make a lot more sense if you've heard the whole series. My name is Leonie Joubert, and this is episode 4, Bottom of the Bottle. When Jan van Veek was in his early 20s, he didn't think he'd live to see the end of the decade. He was either going to drink himself to death, or he was going to die trying. And if it wasn't the bottle that was going to get him, he was going to get caught in the crossfire as the apartheid state slugged it out against an underground liberation movement that was trying to pry the grip of white supremacy from the country's throat. It was the middle of the 1980s. Parts of South Africa were a war zone, and Jan and his fellow student activists were running full tilt into a potential collision with it. Today, Jan is stocky and strong, but he's a bit thicker set now, as older men usually are, and his temples are painted silver. He isn't a tall man, although he can be imposing and inscrutable at times. Once you get beneath the exterior, though, it's hard to imagine that that much rage could once have burned inside him, because he's got a giant of a heart. He's empathetic, almost to a fault. Which might explain why he did what he did. He doesn't like to revisit that day, back in 1983. But it was probably the fulcrum that tipped him into that spiral of drinking. A desperate bid to anaesthetize the grim burden of some sort of psychological debt, not only for himself, but for his forefathers too. Jan was 19 when it happened, although in the photographs he doesn't look a day over 15. Like most of his fellow soldiers, when he answered his military call-up papers, he believed the line that they were being sold by the government, that this was a just war, and that the South African Defence Force was defending the northern border against the threat of communism. Communist forces had overrun Angola after its colonial rulers fled, and now the red tide was threatening to push into the South African territory of southwest Africa, present-day Namibia. By the time Jan's armoured corps got to their base at Oshikati in northern southwest Africa, the South African military was almost two decades into the Bush War. His unit had spent the better part of nine months conducting rapid incursions into southern Angola. This became known as the war that never happened, because they weren't supposed to be in Angolan territory. 
but sure enough, they'd rush across the border into Angola to do some quick reconnaissance tours and then dash back into safe territory at their base in Lashakati. In and out, in and out. Cracks had started to show in the edifice of this so-called war, though. During their raids, they'd found pamphlets that suggested the supposed communist terrorists they were fighting, the Southwest African People's Organization, SWAPO, and the military wing, the PLAN, were actually a legitimate liberation organization. The people they were hunting down each day, these weren't communists trying to take over South Africa. They were people fighting to be free of apartheid South African rule. What was this about? Shut up, he was told. Don't ask questions. But why was he also being instructed to train up forces of an Angolan rebel movement, Jonas Savimbi's UNITA, in the use of light machine guns? Those forces were part of Angola's civil war, and that was none of South Africa's business, surely? Again, his commanding officers told him to shut the fuck up and not ask questions. And then there was the question of how the Corps was behaving, the incredible abuses they were committing in the name of this just war. His voice is a bit detached as he recalls this. They were doing the most terrible things to innocent young Angolans. They'd charge into an Angolan kraal, demolish the homes and fuck people up for no reason, he says. It was obvious these people weren't soldiers or the enemy. They knew nothing. But the Corps kept doing it. On their last incursion into Angola, things were getting rough. The men had been in the bush for a month. They hadn't washed for weeks. The food was shit. They all had jippo guts. They were miserable. And then the abduction happened. There'd been plenty of those already. They would regularly pick up young Angolan men during those kraal raids and keep them captive for days, interrogating them, supposedly to get information on local terrorist movements. This time was different, though. The man they picked up during this raid was about the same age as Jan. It wasn't just that this guy didn't know anything. He was clearly intellectually challenged. They kidnapped him from a settlement and held him prisoner as the corps kept moving. Three, four, five days, they kept moving, kept moving. At the end of each day, they'd set up camp for the night and haul this guy out for another round of interrogation. Right there in front of everyone, they'd fuck him up, torture him, make him humiliate himself in front of the soldiers. I don't ask Jan for the details. It's hard enough just to recount this much. Jan could see this had nothing to do with getting information. This guy didn't know anything. The whole thing had become some form of entertainment for the corporal and his lieutenant, a fascist fuck called Stanley. Jan says that that's what pushed him over the edge. That they just kept torturing this childlike man for entertainment. He couldn't stand it anymore. He couldn't be part of this. He had two options. He could either slip off into the night and make his way back to South Africa on foot. But desertion in a conflict zone is a very serious offence. In some countries it comes with a death penalty. Even if he made it back across the border into safe territory in southwest Africa, he'd still be about 2,000 kilometres from home and on the run. His other option was just to refuse to continue serving and face court-martial. That afternoon, it must have been in the summer of 1983, he marched up to Lieutenant Stanley, handed over his R4 rifle and said, that's it, I'm done. He didn't care what they did with him. It was clear that the army didn't know what to do with him either. But there must have been some frantic scrabbling behind the scenes, because the next thing he remembers, a helicopter arrived at their bush camp 
and shipped him back to Oshikati. He was shoved into a tent for days, and no one spoke with him. Next thing, he was flown back to the main base in South Africa and shoved into the detention barracks. They kept him there, locked away in a room for a few weeks. The boredom broken twice daily by an afkak session, where he had to run up and down the parade grounds, carrying a railway sleeper or a fence pole hoisted on his shoulder. Apart from that, nothing. Just silence and waiting and boredom and more afkak. Eventually the rest of his corps flew back in, ready to be discharged, and they were all clouded out in the formal ceremony, even him. Not a word about his revolt. He even had Constant Fouillon pin the standard pro-patria medal on his lapel, along with the rest of the corps. There was no debriefing. There was no hint that the men could ask for medical or psychological support if they needed it. They were just told to fuck off home, and that was that. How he avoided court-martial... Well, we'll get to that later in the story. He just chuckles when he remembers what it was like to throw his gear into the back of his VW Beetle and drive back to Johannesburg. When he got home, he took his army gear out into the back garden, dumped it in a pile, and torched the lot of it. That's it, he said. I'm never going back to that fucking place ever again. A month later, Jan was down in Stellenbosch. He was 20 years old and about to start a degree in the social sciences. But he'd also seen things that can never be unseen. He'd done things that can never be undone. There were no flashbacks, no ruminating thoughts, just a clawing unease. There were days where he couldn't bear to be in his own skin anymore. And so he drank. Day after day after day, he partied and he drank, more often than not, until he passed out. The good news is that when Jan tells me the story, he's still with us. He survived his 20s and eventually managed to dial back on that breakneck drinking. Three decades later, though, he still has a troubled relationship with the bottle. But he's heard about how some people are using hallucinogenic mushrooms to manage their alcohol dependence and decides he wants to take a closer look. He doesn't want to quit outright, but understands it's not a healthy relationship and wants to know why. The problem is, even though there are serious medical schools in the US and Europe who are using hallucinogens like psilocybin mushrooms to treat mood disorders and addictions, the substance is still illegal here in South Africa. So he goes in search of an underground journey guide to take him on a deep psychedelic trip. What he finds down the rabbit hole isn't entirely what he expects. Today, Jan describes himself as a typical South African drinker. He has alcohol just about every day, and usually more than one drink. He doesn't hide Smirnoff bottles in the bathroom cabinet, or hit the scotch before lunch. But he does binge from time to time when the company's right. When he pulls the cork on a good cabinet, half a bottle is never enough. He has an off switch, but it usually kicks in a little too late. And then there's his toxic body invariably waking him up at 3am. The fog of a hangover through much of the next morning. The self-recrimination. But he's lucky. He's a happy drunk. Many, many others aren't. 
There's a reason I'm spending so much time in this series going into the details about people's personal stories, rather than just drilling into the hard numbers from the peer-reviewed science that underlies this interesting new field of psychedelic psychiatry. Because these stories help explain why we end up wrestling with things like depression and anxiety, and why this can lead us to self-medicate in ways that cause us so much harm. The way we process our own stories is how we make sense of this messy psychological space. And psychedelics seem to have a way of helping us work with these narratives in very powerful ways. That's what I'm trying to capture in this series. I don't want to repeat too much of what we've covered in earlier episodes, but if you haven't listened to the whole series, I'd encourage you to dip back into episodes 1 and 3, because they explain how substances like psilocybin, the hallucinogenic compound found in magic mushrooms, are being used to work alongside traditional talk therapy to bring about breakthroughs for people with treatment-resistant depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Alcohol dependence is often the bitter fruit of people trying to self-medicate their mood disorders, and the positive impacts that psilocybin appears to have on mood and behaviour seems to underlie why it's effective in treating dependency issues too. Professor Michael Bogenschutz is an addiction psychiatrist at the University of New Mexico Medical School and heads up some of the early work in using psilocybin from hallucinogenic mushrooms alongside traditional therapy methods to treat alcohol and nicotine dependence. The work is still in its infancy and the next round of studies need to be bigger and more rigorous but the early findings look very promising. They use similar protocols to those talked about in earlier episodes, where researchers are using psychedelics to work with treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. A three-month program where volunteers receive weekly talk therapy sessions to prepare them for and help them work through just two psychedelic sessions where they take a dose of the hallucinogen, psilocybin. The first dosing session is relatively mild, the second quite a bit deeper. Each dosing session lasts about four hours and takes place in a safe place, in a comfortable lounge-type room, with two therapists present. And typical with so much of the psilocybin therapy research, the dependency trial shows that the substance also produces a general sense of well-being in people, even long after the substance has left the body, and has significant impact on their habitual behaviours that drive the drinking or smoking. In fact, it looks as though the psilocybin therapy is outstripping conventional state-approved drugs that are currently used to treat alcohol and nicotine dependence. According to one of the papers I found, the success rate of the medication prescribed for treating smoking dependence in the United States is about 35%. Six months after quitting, just over one-third of people who take these meds will still be abstaining. Two-thirds will be smoking again. The success rate for quitting drinking is much lower. For every nine people treated with a prescription medication to help them stop drinking, only one manages to stay off the bottle. Psilocybin, however, seems to be much more effective. In one of the first trials using this hallucinogen to treat nicotine dependence, 80% of the participants were still not smoking after six months. Two and a half years after quitting, 60% of the participants were still on the wagon. 
For the alcohol treatment, the first proof-of-concept trial was very small and it wasn't a blind trial. The volunteers who signed up for the program crossed a range of drinkers. Some were drinking just a bit too much each day, like Jan. Some were binging to the point of regular and dangerous blackouts. Some needed to quit completely, others just wanted to dial back to a healthier moderation. After the two psilocybin sessions, most of them were able to cut back on their alcohol use significantly and were able to stick to it through the nine-month follow-up period. Researchers are busy with a second, larger trial now, which is much more tightly controlled, and they're seeing similar positive outcomes, although I haven't seen any published papers on the second trial yet. Overall, these studies show that all participants appear to drink less following the treatment. They report that their cravings decrease and that they have much more self-control. Now, you'll remember from episode 3, we discussed how the medications used to treat mood disorders and addictions usually involve taking a drug or a combination of drugs in a way that keeps the chemical present in your body constantly. Psychedelic treatment seems to work very differently. It's the subjective experience you have while you're in that psychedelic state that appears to make them work. It's what happens in your perception of yourself and your history that account for the changes in behavior and mood that last long after the substance has left your body. You'll also remember from episode 1, we spoke about the mystical experience and how psilocybin often allows people to have an encounter with some notion of the divine. One of the curious things coming through from the alcohol and nicotine treatment studies is that the more intense the mystical encounter is during the psychedelic session, the greater your likelihood of success is as you try and kick your habit. Now I'm sure you're all familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a theory from the field of psychology about what motivates us as humans. At the bottom of the pyramid are our basic needs like food and water and shelter. Once all the basics are met, apparently we need things that allow our full expression of talent and potential. Each one of these needs across all the tiers of the pyramid drive our behavior in different degrees. One of the gears at the very top of the pyramid, the one that kicks us into eventual self-actualization, is the need for peak experiences. These are aha moments, moments of revelation or personal illumination. They often come from solitary processes like during a total immersion in nature, or the flow that comes with running or surfing or creative work, from listening to music or dancing, or a breakthrough in knowledge or introspection. Meditation also gives you that, although it can take years of practice to do so. These peak experiences are important for the kind of behavior change needed to stall addictive spirals. Psychedelics appear to be a fast lane to that peak experience because they work on the brain by bringing on this mystical experience, a sort of encounter with the divine. Okay, just to be clear, I'm not debating whether or not God or gods exist. We're clever apes, and for some or other reason, we seem to have evolved not only with a need for encounters with the divine, but we also have the machinery in our brains to give us the illusion that it happens. Take the temporal lobe. People who have many seizures in this part of the brain have been known to have a spiritual encounter. In fact, if you take a normal healthy brain and tickle the temporal lobe with, say, a weak magnetic field, you can trigger a God experience in that person. P. 
people who've had surgery on the temporal lobe have sometimes reported encountering spiritual beings afterwards. So, that Damascus Road experience that the Christian disciple Paul had? That could have been nothing more than a small epileptic event in his temporal lobe. There are a whole lot of other parts of the brain that also work, either to dissolve the self and give a sense of having a spiritual experience, or enhance feelings of social cohesion and interaction. In a hunter-gatherer society, those with brains and behaviour that allowed for more group bonding and cooperation would probably have been more tightly woven into the group and would have been more likely to survive the dangers of their world. So they would have been able to pass on their genes. Those people on the margins of the groups, the outliers, might have been more likely to die, taking their genes with them. Because belief in God or gods produces ritualistic, community-oriented, cooperative behaviour, it might have helped the survival of those whose brains were wired to spiritual belief. So here we are, all these generations later, and we've evolved a telephone in our heads that wants to connect us to something divine. Whether or not there's anyone on the other end of the line to take the call, well, that's another story. Hallucinogens like those found in psilocybin mushrooms are called entheogens, which comes from the original Greek meaning to generate the divine within. There are many entheogens in nature, magic mushrooms being just one of them. For whatever reason, they act on our brains in such a way that it's as if the telephone line to the divine clears of all the crackling and static and white noise. For a few short hours, the line becomes crystal clear and you can actually hear the full spectrum of sound. Only it's not just auditory, it's quite literally across all the senses. A visit into this realm, that space where magic mushrooms takes you, Well, I'm going to call it a visit to the entheosphere, a short trip to heaven, right here on earth, right inside your own head. Jan's drinking isn't that out of control, but you just need to sit in on a few sessions in a sobriety group like Alcoholics Anonymous to hear how devastating alcohol can be for many people. The fights and aggression, the verbal or even physical abuse, the blackouts, the moodiness, the criminally reckless driving, the risky sex, the passing out and zero recollection of how you got home. The statistics about the links between violence and booze are chilling. But it's so normalised that we just accept that this is how things are. I stumbled on a bit of research done by a panel of scientists appointed by the UK government a few years ago, who did an assessment of the harm associated with the 20 most widely used drugs in society. Here's a list of the top six offenders, ranked according to their harm to the user and to society at large. Number one, alcohol, followed by heroin, crack cocaine, methamphetamines, cocaine, and then nicotine. Psilocybin mushrooms? so low on the graph that its bar barely leaves the x-axis. I've put a paper on the website so you can check it out. Given South Africa's boozing stats, many of you will know precisely what I mean when I talk about what an alcohol hangover feels like. In all likelihood, many of you may even be feeling this way right now. The foggy head, the attention span of a gnat, the nausea, the low mood, the outright irritation, the self-loathing, the sick feeling because you can't remember how the evening ended, 
and, paradoxically, maybe even the urge to go another round. Given how cheap, available and addictive alcohol is, it's hardly surprising that the Medical Research Council recently found that alcohol is the most widely abused drug in South Africa and the most harmful to society at large. According to one estimate in the South African Medical Journal, the economic, social and health harms of alcohol cost our economy 17 billion rand each year. After bringing in a revenue of 16 billion through taxes and excise, which offset the costs, the drug still drains the national fiscus by 1 billion rand annually. We're talking the cost of hospital admissions, policing, arrests, imprisonment, social support, lost productivity, absenteeism from work, and so on. Remember, while the private sector soaks up the profits of this industry, you and I and the state have to pick up the health care and support costs. In our country, and where the heaviest drinkers on the continent, alcohol is linked with over half of all of our road-related deaths and half of all murders. One in three acts of violence in our country happens while people are under the influence. One in four suicides involve booze. Well over half of all hospital admissions in our major cities involve alcohol intoxication. It's the third largest contributor to death and disability after sexually transmitted infections and interpersonal violence, and both of these are themselves influenced by alcohol. Alcohol makes us moody, depressed, angry, violent, uninhibited, reckless and disconnected. And yet, this drug is legal. Psilocybin, by all accounts, is quite the opposite. It opens us up to connection, makes us generally joyful, upbeat, gentle, loving and creative. And the positive effects of this hangover can last for months. The first time Jan tried hallucinogenic mushrooms was at a music festival in his late 40s. He probably took a gram or so and came back from that gentle trip a changed man, he says. The rocks sparkled and colours exploded, but mostly his guarded carapace of self-protection had melted away. He's convinced that mushrooms have changed him permanently for the better, making him open to connection with people, warmer, more giving. So many of the people in the underground psychedelic community who I've spoken to while researching the series say they've experienced the same thing. It's this sense of connection and openness that might explain why empathy-boosting psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin look so promising for treating alcohol dependence, something which might even extend to other forms of addiction too. I'm running out of time in this episode, so I can't go into the history of this as much as I'd like, but LSD was being used widely to treat alcohol addiction in the 1950s and 60s, well before it became a recreational drug and got banned. LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, or acid, was first produced by a Swiss chemist, Albert Hoffman, in a lab in 1938, after he synthesized it from the chemical compound in a fungus called ergot. He dosed himself on the stuff a few years later, and, well, discovered its mind-expanding, psyche-revealing properties. And that's where the name comes from, the Greek meaning to reveal the mind. And because of this, Researchers in the field of psychiatry started using LSD, psilocybin from mushrooms, and mescaline from the peyote cactus found in the Mexican desert to work with mood disorders. 
Apparently, there are over a thousand published scientific papers from back then, documenting the clinical experimental work done with over 40,000 people in various therapeutic contexts. In fact, Bill Wilson, one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, was convinced that LSD had great therapeutic potential for alcoholism recovery and used it himself as part of his own path to sobriety. So the science we're talking about in this series isn't coming out of the blue. In fact, it's more like the field is trying to emerge from an imposed dark ages. The recreational use of psychedelics came after the therapeutic research was well underway. But because of the anti-establishment nature of the counterculture that was using them recreationally, the beatniks of the 1960s, the US used its muscle to get the mechanisms of the United Nations to ban these substances globally, which shut down all the research for four decades. There's been a tentative resurgence of this work in the past 10 years, though, as some medical schools in the US and Europe have managed to get legal clearance to do research in this field. But because the substances are still illegal here, those in South Africa who've gotten wind of their healing potential have had to go underground to experiment with them. If anything, this is where the risk lies, as this makes it hard to put the best harm reduction protocols in place, something which we'll talk about in a later episode. Okay, one last little bit of science before we return to Jan's story and how he used psilocybin to get to the bottom of his own alcoholism because this explains why psychedelics seem to have such powerful potential for treating addiction. And for this, we need to visit an experiment that's become known as Rat Park. One of the earlier models for explaining addiction was based on an experiment going back many decades, where a rat would be put in a cage on its own and left with two water sources, one plain water, the other laced with cocaine or heroin. The rat would drink some of the plain water and meh. Then it found the drugged water and proceeded to slowly binge itself to death. Your classic junkie. The explanation, according to scientists, was that addiction is merely the result of your body getting physically hooked on a chemical. But in the 1970s, someone turned this experiment on its head. Instead of putting a solitary rat into an empty cage, the scientists built a little playground coloured balls, tunnels to run through, lots of rats for company, and they were all given the same water options, clean water and cocaine or heroin-laced water. Want to guess what happened? The happy rats were so busy gallivanting around their playground, grooming, playing, having sex, chilling together, that they hardly touched the drugged water. They didn't get addicted, they didn't binge on it, they didn't gorge themselves to death. Addictions like alcohol dependence aren't the result of a chemical hook, many scientists now argue. Rather, they're the bitter fruit of loneliness and alienation. According to this new understanding of substance abuse, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Have a look for Johann Hari's book, The Last Days of the War on Drugs, where he explodes those old ideas about addiction and explains why we need to treat addiction as a health issue not a criminal or policing one. Hari gives a real-world demonstration of the Rat Park experiment, the Vietnam War. During the war, US soldiers were miserable as hell, and they coped by shooting up with heroin. Something like 20% of all soldiers were using it, and using it hard. There was a huge panic that a flood of junkies would return to the United States when the war ended. But according to Hari, 
95% of the heroin-using soldiers simply stopped when they got home. No rehab, no withdrawal. They got back to their families and communities, stepped out of the daily horror of war, and sobered up. It's not the chemicals that get us, says Hari. It's the cages we live in that drive us to drink. Instead of casting addicts out as being loser junkies, Hari's research suggests that we need to think how we can create rat park type environments around us, where people can feel loved and connected and safe. Which brings us back to psychedelics and how they work to allow us to have a greater sense of connection, not only while in a psychedelic state, but afterwards too. It's got to do with our ego. Let's imagine for a minute that our ego is like the exoskeleton of a crayfish. This external skeleton is a hard outer structure that gives the creature shape, allows it to move, it protects its soft inner organs. The carapace allows it to interact with the world while being a hard barrier between itself and the things around it. It's necessary for its survival, but it constrains its growth. The only way that a young crayfish can grow bigger is to shed its hard shell every few months. During those hours of molting, it'll be soft and pliable and vulnerable, but it'll also be able to swell in size. It'll hide away somewhere safe until this new, bigger shell has set solid. For some or other reason, psychedelics soften our exoskeleton-like egos. Consciousness researchers call it ego death, a temporary dissolving of this hard exterior in a way that allows us to connect with others and the universe and become a bit more expansive. Jan saw how a bit of recreational use of hallucinogenic mushrooms brought about a permanent change in his ability to connect with others. But recently, he wanted to do one of those deep psychedelic journeys mentioned in earlier episodes, where people take a 5-gram dose of dried hallucinogenic mushrooms, to see if he could make a bit more sense of his own troubled relationship with alcohol. And his experience during that journey was so significant, he now thinks that psilocybin may be too powerful a medicine to dabble with frivolously at parties. There's another part to Jan's story that needs telling. It might explain how he evaded court-martial when he refused to serve as a soldier any longer. It explains his near-suicidal drinking in that first year of varsity. And it might also show why he threw himself into student politics with an almost reckless disregard for his safety. You see, Jan was born into, well, let's just say, he was born the heir apparent of a political family that was in the upper echelons of the National Party when it was at the height of its apartheid reign. His grandfather was so close to the inner sanctum that he was literally within arm's reach when Furwood was assassinated in Parliament. Jan grew up inside the rarefied atmosphere, unaware of the extent of suffering his family was party to, and also with this constant air of expectation that he would uphold the patriotic ideal and follow the paternal footsteps into politics. He was a teenager when he answered his military caller. He was wide-eyed and excited. He was going to be the best soldier he could be, like that character Rocco de Vett in the photo comic Grensvechter. When he talks about those months in the bush, his voice is moderated and a bit distant. But he's very clear about it. That fascist fuck, Lieutenant Stanley, and his lackey corporal, 
They weren't two rogue junior commanders who had broken some kind of defence force code. This was an organised, disciplined army. They were working with the full blessing of a chain of command that was operating illegally in Angola and was committing human rights atrocities while it interfered with another country's liberation struggles. How does a man so young make sense of that? His politician family member had the Minister of Defence on speed dial. So when Jan handed over his rifle and told his commanding officer he was done, he suspects there were a few panicked high-level calls behind the scenes. The government didn't want the press to get wind of this. It'd be far too embarrassing. Someone, somewhere, made it go away. But what was he to do with his own story now? How was he to recalibrate his identity and his sense of place in the world? How was he to find a new way to live, given the things he'd seen and been party to? I suppose because he didn't know how to do that, for a time, he drank. Until one day, about a year or so later, a firebrand of a student activist called Jan out on his reckless drinking. Why are you doing this, directing all this rage at yourself? Why not use it for good? Turn it on the racist state that put your anger there in the first place. And so he did. Jan made a very public display of joining the inconscription campaign. He evaded his commando call-ups so often that the military police came knocking on his mother's door, looking to arrest him. He joined a group of volunteers who ferried underground comrades from the United Democratic Front to hospital in a nearby township during a local war between them and the state-sponsored rent lord gangsters known as the Wittdukker. He helped mobilise farm workers while the unions were still illegal. He began sneaking onto wine farms late at night to meet with labourers about their rights, knowing that the farmers tended to shoot trespassers first and ask questions later. For a long time, Jan and his fellow student activists felt safe. They were protected from the ruthless security apparatus of the state by their white skin. But then, Cape Flats activist Ashley Creel got murdered, and they knew it was by the cops. Next, David Webster, and then Anton Lubowski. They didn't feel they had immunity any longer. It was fair game now for anyone who stood in the way of the white government that was slowly losing its grip. That's why he thought he wouldn't make it to 30. And in the midst of all of that, he had an encounter with his father which felt like the final betrayal. They had a fraught relationship for most of his life, and he remembers his father as a stingy man. Not just with money, he was emotionally tight-fisted too, and a full-blown alcoholic. One day on a visit home, his father called him in and slapped a dossier down on the table. By now he was a sick man, his tongue frozen after a stroke, but he thumped the folder angrily and demanded to know what this was all about. It was filled with surveillance information. The security police had been building up material on activists on campuses around the country. They had tracked his movements. They knew where he lived, who he was fraternising with. It was all chillingly close to home. Worse still, it turned out that this dossier came directly from General Lothon Nietling, the man who later became known as South Africa's own Dr. Mengele, who had used his police laboratory to cook up poisons that the state planned to use to assassinate anti-apartheid activists. Nietling and Jan's father had been thick friends since their own university days, and it looked like they were in cahoots, trying to bully Jan into compliance. His father demanded to know what Jan was up to, demanded that he stop. 
Jan remembers that day as being the moment he finally felt as though his father had turned his back on him. Their relationship never recovered. Fifteen years later, Jan's dad is gone, and a chasm of unresolved stuff lies between them. From the vantage point of his mid-fifties, Jan can see the toll that the 1980s took on himself and his contemporaries. Many of his fellow student activists have succumbed to suicide, to mental illness, to cancer, to drink. Even though he knows his own history, he doesn't fully understand why he still drinks as heavily and as regularly as he does when he knows he prefers a more sober, disciplined life. So when he set off on his first mushroom journey, his intention was twofold. He wanted to get a better sense of this fraught, three-decades-old relationship with alcohol. And he wanted to find his father. Now, remember, psilocybin is a Schedule 7 drug here in South Africa. That's the equivalent of a Schedule 1 in the US. As long as it's illegal, therapists can't use it alongside normal therapy methods to work with people like Jan to manage their substance use. Instead, he has to find one of the ceremonial mushroom guides in the underground psychedelic community, the kind I've mentioned in earlier episodes. He went through the motions. Four days before, he cut out booze and meat. Six hours before kickoff, a total food fast. He packed a mattress, a pillow, a blanket for the night. The process started early one evening like so many of the other journeyers we featured in the series. Sitting quietly in someone's lounge, near the fire, with the music playing. He quieted his mind, set his intention for the trip, and drank down the five grams of powdered psilocybin mushrooms that had been mixed into a brew of warm black tea. It came on strong, he says, much faster than he had expected. Literally in 15 minutes, everything changed. It was intense, but it wasn't threatening at all. His body seemed to dissolve, and his consciousness stepped into that dark vaulted space where the dancing and gyrating fractals exploded around him. For the first hour or so, he lay back on the mattress and played with the sacred geometry, touching the fractal shapes with, well, they were still his fingers, but they weren't fingers anymore. It was as if his body had changed into something else. It had become a completely different vessel. This new vessel interacted with the geometry, which responded to him, exploding into other colours and shapes with each touch. It was the most beautiful thing. Then the geometry began to fade, and it was as if he disappeared down a rabbit hole, following one thought in this direction, and then another thought in that direction. Each rabbit hole its own discreet little journey. Each of these went wandering through the museum of his childhood memories. They were amazing, incredibly vivid, he says. It was as if I was going right back there, playing in the flay on the family farm in the Highfelt. I hadn't thought about many of these things for such a long time. They felt so real. They were mixed in with wonderful emotions and feelings. This isn't how I remember my childhood when I'm sober. Each memory was, without exception, a happy one. I thought how fabulous my childhood was. It was all pure joy. He really wanted to see his father in that space, maybe even go for a walk with him and have a chance to talk about some of the unresolved stuff between them. He wanted to say something to his father, something like, Hey, I'm okay in spite of your efforts to fuck me up. And he wanted to ask him, Are you okay in spite of my efforts to be a shit son? None of this came up, though. None of the painful memories of the most difficult years with his alcoholic father. None of the army stuff. 
not even the question about his own concerns about booze. It bothered him that he couldn't find his father while he was on the journey. Had he forgotten the man? Some internal wisdom answered him and said, No, it's all good. Don't feel bad about this. When he recounts this to me, he doesn't sound disappointed or cheated. And I guess this is the thing with mushrooms. From what the people in this underground world of psychedelics tell me, there's just no way of telling where mushrooms will take you on one of these journeys. You can set an intention before the trip. You can have a list of all the things you want to resolve or visit. But ultimately, the trip will take you where it takes you, and you just have to yield to it. The next rabbit hole was to revisit the memories of his own kids. The time from his mid-twenties came flooding back. It was a total immersion, not just in the visual recollection of the time with his young children, but also in the unfiltered joy of the three of them playing together two decades earlier. Oh, he says, when a four-year-old runs at you with absolute conviction and smashes into you and you both tumble over, it was those memories, he says his voice tailing off happily. The layers of joy were so deep that he laughed until his cheeks were soaked with tears. His final memories during the journey were of his mother and sisters. After his parents split when he was about 13, he was surrounded by a formidable matriarchy of women. During that psychedelic experience, he felt an overwhelming sense of gratitude for having grown up in a context like that because it changed something in him for the better. And so, in the end, he didn't find his father, and the booze question didn't cross his mind at all in those hours, and it was as if a voice said to him at one point, No, leave it, it's all irrelevant. He shrugs and smiles. Jan is generous with his story. He is not the kind of person who likes to talk about this sort of stuff, but he accommodates me with my repeated request to revisit this detail and what about that detail. Towards the end of our conversation, and there were many to get us to this point, I ask him for one more detail. That young man, the young Angolan, whose commanders kidnapped from that settlement and tortured for no reason other than that they could. Whatever became of him? Jan doesn't know. He heard that the guy just disappeared. Like so many of the other young men who were kidnapped by his corps, once they were done with him, he disappeared. His commanding officers said they'd let him go, but Jan reckons they could just as well have killed him and dumped his body in the bush. In fact, he thinks, putting it all together in his mind now, that's most likely what happened. There's a lot of unravelling that still needs to happen for Jan to get to the bottom of these stories and understand how they shaped him to be who he is today. After his first mushroom journey, he was overcome with a sense of peace but he was also so tired that he felt he could sleep for days. As much as he'd love to go back and revisit that other world, he knows he needs a few months before he does another deep mushroom journey like this one. And he knows that next time, the darker memories might decide to present themselves, and his own difficult trip might still lie ahead of him. But he's okay with that, because from what everyone's told him, even the tough journeys are good, and he's ready for it. Thank you for joining me on this journey. 
If you missed previous episodes, please visit the website, psychonauts.co.za, or you can catch up via iTunes. Many of the names and the details of the people who appear in the series have been changed to protect their identities. The author, that's me, Leonie Chabert, and my partners in the Psychonauts, we aren't endorsing the therapeutic or recreational use of psychedelics. This podcast is founded on the principle of harm reduction, words spreading about the potential benefits of psychedelics. But because they're illegal, it's driven them underground, where it's hard to monitor and safely regulate their use. This podcast aims to open up that conversation, as well as put some evidence-based ideas out there about the risks associated with unsupported therapeutic or recreational use of the substances. The kind of psychedelic experiences discussed in this series should only be done under the supervision of a skilled professional and in a safe environment, and people with a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia should steer well clear. Speak to an informed family doctor or psychiatrist to find out more. Oh, and don't go out foraging for wild mushrooms. No matter how good you think your mushroom identification skills are, it's really hard to tell the lethal ones from the safe ones. As the old saying goes, all fungi are edible, but some only once. <laughs>